to another episode of On My Mind. I'm Shelley Griffith, and I am delighted today to have a good friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Steve Marietta, who is a cardiologist, and we're going to talk about a lot of things today related to health and uh, cardiac issues. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. Glad to have you with us today. And Let's start out like we normally do with my guests and give us some of your background, like where you were raised, uh, education, family, and things like that. Okay. Well, I was uh, born in a little Italian community in Indiana called Clinton, Indiana, and it was basically 100% Italians lived there. And um, um, from uh, there, I spent uh, 18 years uh, in uh, primary school and secondary and then went to Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, which was about 90 miles north and got my bachelor's of science degree. Uh, From there, I moved to Omaha, Nebraska and went to a private medical school called Creighton University. I did my medical school, my internal medicine residency and uh, cardiology fellowship there. From there, I took uh, my first job position in Shreveport, Louisiana Uh, developing an interventional cardiology program at Shumpert Medical Center and I spent approximately two years there uh, prior to uh, coming to Knoxville, uh, Tennessee metro area. Now Steve, what brought you to our area from all of those other areas? Well interestingly I had two colleagues I trained with that were uh, practicing in, uh, in Knoxville and they knew of a position that became available and I contacted them and interestingly I took the position here and the guy that was leaving took the position in Shreveport, Louisiana. <laughs> Total swap. So it's kind of a small world. Oh that's great. Now family wise uh, you we were talking ahead of time and you were raised in an Italian family. Yes. Share with our listeners that because I, too, sharing with Steve uh, for our listeners uh, that my mother was Italian, just fascinating to me that that cultural difference. Yes. Well, uh, I was raised in a a very Italian family. Uh, I'm uh, second generation. Uh, All my grandparents came over from Italy in uh, the late uh, 1880s and very early 1900s. Um, And... um, Interestingly, uh, all my relatives are from extreme northern Italy, and uh, uh, from a historical perspective, northern Italy was actually part of France for uh, 500 years. And then with the unification of Italy in about uh, 1865 or thereabouts, it became part of Italy again. So my Italian heritage and the food we ate and grew up with probably has a very powerful French influence. For example, most people think of Italy and olive oil. Mm -hmm. In the northern provinces of Italy, it's butter. It is flat out butter. Now, do they use olive oil? Yes, but mostly a butter-based culture. And so, uh, and there's foods in northern Italy that if you talk to a southern Italian, they, they have no earthly idea what it is and vice versa. And interestingly, 90% of the Italians that immigrated to the United States are Southern Italian. Only 10% are Northern Italian. 
uh, Northern Italy was much more industrial, and so they didn't have the lack of jobs that the uh, Southern Italians had. So the Southern Italians were more likely to immigrate. So they all came through Ellis Island. My relatives' names are there, and then spread out. Of course, the immigrants at that time, they got the, the lowest level jobs possible. Uh, and what uh, my uh, immigrant family did, they worked, they came and migrated to actually uh, the southern part of Chicago, Joliet, Illinois area, and they worked the coal mines. Mm. And the coal mines was a brutal business, a lot of injuries and mortality, and a mine would maybe open 10 or 15 years, and then it would close down and move uh, 20, 30 miles away, then uh, open another one, it would close down. And so my relatives started up in that area and migrated down about 150 miles south to the Clinton, Indiana area, which was the last mine they worked in before they went on and did something else. And it's really interesting, they moved their house by mule <laughs> to, the, to that location. Really? Yeah. So we, we always had Italian food. Our house was full of garlic all the time. I would bring friends over and they'd go, your house has a funny smell. It's garlic. <laughs> yes, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But as you got through, that's, that's fascinating. As you got through your training and, and chose uh, cardiology, share with the listeners um, how you got into uh, what is known as, uh, folks, the interventional side of cardiology. And, and that involves, uh, correct me, Steve, but that would involve the heart catheterizations and other things uh, protectively for folks. But share with us how you segued into that portion of cardiology. Well, it, um, when I trained in cardiology, it was kind of an extremely exciting time. Uh, I got to see the early phases of cardiology when someone came in with a heart attack and there was just nothing you could do. You just dealt with the complications and they were literally terrible and the mortality rate was extremely high. Um, and then um, a, a former graduate of Creighton University did a very instrumental study in that everybody that came in with a heart attack, he put a special catheter down the artery and retracted it, and he retracted blood clot. So that started the beginning of a new area of cardiology, which less attack the blood clot causing the heart attack. And that started with lytic therapy, thrombolytic therapy. And the first thrombolytic agents were streptokinase, that was a byproduct of uh, streptomycin uh, um, uh, bacteria. Uh, and we would have someone come in with a heart attack. We would do emergency heart catheterization on them and drip streptokinase in the infarct air, uh, artery and watch it open. So then that was also about the time they were starting balloon angioplasty of lesions in the coronary arteries. And that segued from uh, intercoronary thrombolytic therapy and some people were left with a high-grade lesion that you ended up doing what they call strep and stretch. The strep was the streptokinase that you open the artery with, and then the residual lesion that was left there, you balloon dilated or stretched it open. 
And at that particular time, um, one of the leaders in the country on this, uh, very progressive, a guy named Jeff Hartzler out of Kansas City, he was a big proponent of that. And then that subsequently segued into a standard of care, the strep and stretch. Uh, then they developed more sophisticated thrombolytic agents that were more thrombin specific and had less side effects such as urokinase and then streptokinase became somewhat obsolete at that point. If you received streptokinase once, you developed an antibody to it and you could never receive it again. The, the thrombin-specific agents, you didn't have to worry about that. So uh, it really was an exciting time to be in cardiology that I got to see we couldn't do anything to all of a sudden we're stopping heart attacks in their dead track. So I became an interventional cardiologist as a result of that. Oh, that's outstanding. Now, progression then, Steve, from what you're describing, the balloon angioplasty and all, stents and other things like, followed all that? Yeah. Or? Of course, the, the big um, limitation of balloon angioplasty, depending on lesion characteristics, the lesion would grow back. Okay. And in particular, if it was an acute heart attack and you open the artery up and balloon dilated, the, um, if it was in particular a smaller blood vessel, the regrowth rate could be 50% and sometimes even more than that. So they thought about putting scaffolding tissue uh, or uh, 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 material in there to hold the artery open. And so th those were wire meshes called stents and they were developed in the late 90s. Uh, the first stent was really just a coil of wire uh, uh, called the Geoturkin-Rubin stent, and they were very, very helpful uh, because they would open the artery up. In particular, when you balloon dilate it, it would sometimes split open too much, much and then the flaps of tissue would collapse back on itself. So they were very good bailout devices in those situations and were very helpful. And they were very deliverable since they were really just a, a coil of wire that would bend and twist uh, uh, very easily. But there was not enough scaffolding material in there that it had uh, a, a long-term uh, uh, benefit. So then they subsequently developed stints that were uh, matrix-based but they were rigid platforms and they were very hard to deliver after uh, as a result of that. But they held the artery open uh, uh, much better than the uh, 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 coiled wire-based stents and the restenosis rate was even less. But it was still present. And when you got instant restenosis with a, uh, a metallic matrix platform, uh, they were basically surgical grade uh, stainless steel, um, you, you had real trouble because if you went in and opened that up again, the restenosis rate was again 50%. So through research and um, uh, progression, we then went to with instant restenosis that was refractory to repeat balloon dilation, we went to what they call brachytherapy where you would put a radioactive ribbon inside the artery and radiate the instant restenosis, dilate it open, 
and then that radiation or brachytherapy would decrease the restenosis rate. And that was a very popular approach for several years. And we knew at that point, since that was very, very helpful, that maybe coating the stent with a drug, a chemotherapeutic agent might be a benefit. So that's exactly what they did. They coated it with, with chemotherapeutic agents that they used in cancer treatment. Uh, and trying to get the drug to stick to the stent and all the complexities associated with that and all the further developments, well, it worked. The chemotherapy was released. It told the cells not to divide and cause another blockage to grow there. And that just revolutionized interventional cardiology to the point now that the delivery systems and the drug coding and its um, uh, uh, ability to deliver the drug in a timely fashion has now decreased the restenosis rate to almost zero, much wow. less than 5%. Wow. Uh, so it's really just been uh, a very exciting time for the last 35 years to see all of this develop. Absolutely. Take us through, Steve, if you will, getting to that point in the cardiac workup. And you and I have talked about this. If I come to your office at my age in the 70s or even younger, and I'm complaining of some type of uh, chest pain, maybe what I think is an irregular heartbeat, these kind of things. Take our listeners who may not have had to go through this themselves or with family through a standard workup okay. that you're going to recommend okay. to me. Well, the workup is somewhat age-specific. So let's let's start off with a little younger age than you and myself. <laughs> if, if they're a younger individual, uh, in particular under the age of 65, and they come in with chest pain and you're concerned that it may be the heart, uh, historically in the past we um, did a lot of treadmill testing and augmented it with an imaging agent, either echocardiogram or a nuclear isotope was the mainstay of our evaluation of that. But those particular approaches were very good and we used them for decades, but the, the uh, accuracy of them sometimes uh, was not as ideal as we would like. So that sometimes we would do an exercise nuclear study on them and assuming we got a good quality treadmill phase, a good quality nuclear imaging, it was only accurate in the 80 to 85% range. So you still sometimes had to have a level of suspicion uh, and, and go further with a diagnostic cardi cardiac catheterization, which is 99.9% .9 accurate. But in the last 20 years, they've developed advanced cardiac CTA um, that's been a very good quality for the last 20 years, but it's been impossible to get improved by the insurance companies, but they finally have realized the wisdom of having that test approved. So in the younger age group that were evaluating their chest pain suspicious for cardiac etiology and that are under the age of 65, we quite commonly will go directly to a cardiac CTA. What that test is, is basically an ultra-fast CAT scanner. So a, a standard CAT scanner, if you're getting a CAT scan of your chest, may take 10 pictures a second. 
the ultra-fast CT scanners of your heart are taking 256 pictures per second. So it's like a movie camera. And then we put x-ray dye in. Once it enters the heart, you start scanning immediately and you watch the, the, the contrast agent pass through the heart. And then with computer technology, you can reassemble all those pictures literally into a movie picture. So it's almost as good a quality as an angiogram of the heart, heart catheterization. So that's our, our primary go-to test in someone under the age of 65. If you're over the age of 65, then what happens is as we age, we're more likely to get calcium deposits in the blood vessels that goes to the heart and in other vessels of the body. And that calcium, when the x-ray beam hits it, creates a what they call a blooming artifact. It looks like it just blooms outward. And so it makes it very difficult to quantitate the lesions when you have much blooming artifact. So what the researchers and scientists have done, and it's just becoming uh, uh, available now on a more general basis, is they can actually interrogate the contrast agent as it's flowing through the blood vessel and give you an idea whether that blockage is hemodynamically significant or not where that calcium deposit is. And of course, that's called cardiac CTA with FFR, which stands for fractional flow reserve, but it basically is measuring the flow in the blood vessel before the blockage and measuring the flow in the blood vessel after the blockage to see if there's a significant disturbance in the flow. And that's extremely helpful. Um, uh, and we, we do that in the cath lab now with a standard heart cath, uh, only we use a special wire device that we put in the heart to do that. This is all done non-invasively, and it's, it's really building steam very rapidly. And if I understand correctly, Steve, you and I are talking about it and your colleagues, the, the heart cath that used to be done mainly through the femoral artery in the leg mm -hmm. is now transferred to the radial Almost artery. Almost always done by radial artery, much, right. Much easier and Well, it's a, the, the big advantage of the radial artery is less bleeding complications. Yeah. Right. You know, from the growing site, uh, it's sometimes hard to put pressure on the artery to get hemostasis afterwards. Uh, although, really, in the last 20-plus years, we've been putting... Uh, plugs or stitches in the artery on the way out so that decreases the bleeding complications rather dramatically. But the radial approach is, is popular. It was really developed largely by the Japanese um, and um, um, it's, it really uh, is very easy to control the, the, the bleeding uh, after you remove the catheter from the, from the wrist. And you just put a translucent band on it that you put pressure on it and uh, when you stop seeing blood release that's the pressure you hold for um, 15 minutes and then you gradually bring the pressure down in the balloon and make sure it doesn't bleed and the person's sitting in a chair while you're doing that. Good. Now there have been some of my friends with questions and, and certainly even in my retirement, I get asked questions. You get asked questions all the time outside the office from friends. But when you do the 
catheterization and determine blockages. Is there a certain percentage of blockage at which you recommend uh, the bypass type surgery or is that yeah. based on individuals? Mm -hmm. How do you do well, that? Well, it, it's, it's based on a, a lot of things. Uh, it has to do with the uh, percentage blockage. You usually want 70% or more uh, or an abnormal FFR of less than 0.8. Okay. Uh, some lesions angiographically look bad, but when you measure the flow disturbance on them, it's not bad at all. And if you bypass that vessel that doesn't have a significant flow disturbance, the bypass is gonna go bad because mm -hmm. it has competitive flow from the native circulation. And um, so it's it really kind of fascinating. This FFR was a very common procedure for me to do. Uh, 20% of lesions that you think are significant angiograph by angiography are not significant by FFR. 20% of lesions you do not think are significant by angiography are significant by FFR. Hmm. So in the, uh, the, this FFR has been around since about the year 2000 also. And I remember this just like less, uh, yesterday, one of my colleagues called me about our practice administrator had had bypass surgery and several years later came in with chest pain and he's called me at five o'clock in the morning and he goes, I've got Randy in here and three of his six bypasses have gone down. Mm -hmm. And uh, my colleague's first name was Greg and I said, Greg, pressure wire those three vessels and see what the FFR is. So he did that and he goes, the FFR isn't hemodynamically significant. And I said, that's mm -hmm. why the bypasses went bad. You don't have to do anything but treat them with medications. Wow. So, so we, we do a massive amount of FFR now. Yeah. Uh, and I wish, wish they even did more than what's being done. And is there, that brings up a question, if you look at I guess, like you say, failure rates of the classic bypasses. Is there a general percentage, maybe? Well, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, the statistics are 10% uh, failure at six months, okay. and then three to five percent per year thereafter. Okay. Again, very very complicated stuff because it has to do obviously with surgical technique. I mean. These uh, uh, ladies and men are uh, having magnifying lenses on their eyes when they're sewing these uh, uh, vessels that are two and a half to three millimeters in size. And really the smallest blood vessel you can technically bypass, they really want it to be no smaller than two millimeters. They've gotten better and they, and, and they, they do a really good job. And the bypass graft patency is also related to not only the size of the vessel, but how much blood is flowing in the vessel. Mm -hmm. As you know, when you slow blood flow down, it wants to clot. Yep. And so they try to make sure they have high flow in the blood vessels. And sometimes they may sequence the bypass graft, meaning they implant it into one blood vessel and then carried on down and implanted into a second blood vessel to increase the flow in the bypass graft to keep it painting. Yes. Now, Steve, when we look at uh, 
as you follow the folks in the office, share with our listeners the most common, I guess, anticoagulants that you're seeing and recommending that are on the market today. We, you and I, are way back into the the for the folks out there who take it or know about the Coumadin era. Mm-hmm. But share with them some of these new. Well, so uh, everybody that has important coronary artery disease, or really even any coronary artery disease, um, um, in particular if they're diabetic, need to give consideration to an antiplatelet agent. And the simplest one out there is aspirin. And um, it's preferably a chewable baby aspirin. Or as I tell people your age and my age, um, Shelley, Good old bear chewable aspens are orange and quite tasty when they chewed them. <laughs> and I would occasionally get a patient that said, oh, yeah, I remember those. My brother ate a whole bottle of them. And I said, they did just fine because they're so safe. And they, just, they would go right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so th- that's, that's the mainstay of treatment. Now, aspirin is an excellent drug. But as we all know, it increases ulcer rate. And that's the rate-limiting uh, side effect of aspirin and it is very very real so we have newer antiplatelet agents called the thiopyridines uh, such as Plavix, Berlinta, um, uh, to name a couple of them and we have quite commonly used those and there's no GI upset no GI ulceration and they can be very very potent so I have a very low threshold if someone says oh, I can't take aspirin because I have an ulcer, or aspirin hurts my stomach, or, you know, I had a friend that had a bleeding ulcer from aspirin, I'll put him on one of the thiopyridines in. Mm -hmm. And I'm very, very, feel very comfortable doing that. Plavix is available generically, so it's very user-friendly. The other ones aren't necessarily available generic at this point, and they can be pricey. And people, if I understand right, Steve, People can certainly, after a period of time, come off of those agents. Well, no, we we really don't have a cure for coronary artery disease, so you're kind of stuck taking them lifelong. So even after bypass surgery, it improves bypass graft patency. Uh, After a stint, it's just, well, after a stint, you're on dual antiplatelet therapy for a short time. Uh, Well, short time, depending on the reason you presented, could be up to a year. Uh, but if it uh, a shorter period of time, if it was a stable coronary syndrome that you stented, you could get by with uh, dual antiplatelet therapy for three to six months and then go to single antiplatelet therapy after that. Okay. But again, it gets complicated on how big the stent is, how much stent material did you put in, is there distal disease, how many vessels did you stent. The more stent material you put in, the longer the stent material you put in, the smaller the blood vessel that was stented, the more likely I'm to recommend dual antiplatelet therapy lifelong, okay. If in particular if you're not having side effects. Huh. Now, preventively, we've heard everybody hears for years, exercise, diet, all of the appropriate things that we need uh, to stay cardiac healthy. And if you have to emphasize the main things, uh, those plus what else? Yeah. You well, you're, you're exactly right. You started off with the, the, the correct one first, which is you're not going to trump exercise in terms of improving your prognosis. 
uh, it trumps everything by a long shot. And the standard recommendations is you want 150 minutes of moderately intense physical activity a week. That's the minimum. You know, we kind of grew up in a time where, oh, you exercise three times a week, you're fine. They really want it five days a week now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the minimum is 30 minutes of moderately intense physical activity five days a week, which tallies up to 150 minutes. If you want to do more than that, there's con additional benefit after that. Uh, and that just, you know, you can not be perfect with your diet, but really do the exercise. And as I tell people, that kind of undoes some of the imperfections in our diet. But diet's very important also. But as we talked before we started uh, recording, that's undergoing a big revolution in the last uh, 30 to 40 years. What we recommended in the past and what we're recommending now, uh, it, it can almost change yearly or every other year. Uh, so, but a good balanced, varied diet with lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, and as your dietitians will tell you, lots of color in the diet. Uh, and be sure to get that in every day. And when my kids were young, uh, the theory back then, you want to get six helpings of fruits or vegetables, or excuse me, seven helpings of fruits or vegetables in daily. And I'd come home from work at night and ask my kids, how many fruits and vegetables are you supposed to get in? <laughs> oh, seven, Daddy. Okay, here's a dollar. <laughs> and uh, and so some of them have continued to remember that, and they, they, they practice that. So that's very, very important to get that in. Um, and then a very, very high-fiber diet, low in processed foods, low in processed carbohydrates. The processed carbohydrates are really very, very bad. The trans fats that the human being has developed again have just been a terrible thing to develop to happen. The trans fats were developed because it increased the shelf life of the pro product because it decreased oxidation uh, of the product. And with trans fats are worse than saturated fats in our diet. So they pulled those out of the diets considerably over the last. 20 years or so, but we got a ways to go. And then, of course, the processed carbohydrates, our diets are just flooded with them. And just, uh, I love these interesting observations that the researchers do. So 200 years ago, the average American in the United States ate five pounds of sugar a year. Now it's five pounds a week. Uh -huh. 50 fold in 200 years. Our body can't take it. But they're in everything. And, you know, high fructose corn syrup, just blatant sugar and everything. And it's masqueraded in all kinds of forms and things like that. We are just not genetically programmed to hire, to, to have that much sugar in our mm -hmm. body. And the more highly processed the carbohydrate is, the more fiber they remove from, from it, and the more the body GI system says, well, you kind of look like sugar to me. I'm going to absorb you very, very rapidly. <laughs> now, if you throw a bunch of fiber in there with it, it slows down the absorption rather dramatically. And of course, water-soluble fiber decreases cholesterol absorption. So, you know, it kind of all fits together and makes sense. But, you know, the a male should get in really a minimum of 40 grams of fiber a day in their diet. And a lady should get in 30 grams a day of fiber in their diet. And let me tell you, I practice what I preach to the best I can. And I'm telling you, you have to work on that. 
you know, for example, an average size meal like you and myself, 40 grams. Well, that means every meal you've got to get at least 15 grams in. That's not easy to do. Um, so um, you better eat, be eating lots of fruits and vegetables to do that. And, of course, you can get some um, uh, very healthy cereals out there that are very limited, but my favorite one is called Uncle Sam's. It's made by Altoon Foods out of California. It was originally developed out of a small company in Massachusetts, and it has each serving has 15 grams of fiber per serving. Uncle Sam's. Uncle Sam's, okay. yeah. And, you know, shredded wheats is okay. It's a little more processed than that. It has a fair amount of fiber. So those are the two main cereals I'll eat. Or, you know, in the winter months, I, I like uh, oatmeal. So uh, I'm a big fan of the uh, Irish steel-cut oats. It's a little bit more natural. Of course, the Americans, they take oat, which is about the size of a BB, uh, uh, and they steam it and flatten it. So it's called rolled oats. And mm -hmm. so it doesn't look like an oat grain at all. And uh, that exposes the inside of the seed and potentially causes oxidation of it. And when you oxidize things, they lose their chemical value. The most perfect example of oxidation is you take a bite of an apple and you set it on the counter. You go back and look at it five minutes later, it's turning brown. Yes. It's oxidizing. You remove the skin of the apple, the skin protects it from oxidation, and it oxidizes. That's the same thing that happens with grains. If you remove the skin from it, the coating, it begins to oxidize. So that's why the Irish steel cut oats, they just take the oat and hit it with a, a blade and fracture it open so it's left in big chunks. So it's it, it has some exposure to oxidation, but not as much as if you've pulverize it or create a powder out of it and it's it's pretty easy to cook and it's a, a very hearty thing and then I usually mix nuts with it nuts are incredibly nutritious they have antioxidant properties and interestingly nuts are very high in fiber mm. uh, walnuts are a very uh, a good source of fiber and um, antioxidants and so I get a handful of walnuts and smash them in my hand or whatever, throw them in with my oatmeal and put some fresh fruit with it and have that. That's good. And get my fiber in that way. Excellent. Yeah. Now, one final question, Steve, and this is, I ask a lot of our guests, <clears throat> if someone comes to you in this, this age and time and says, Dr. Marietta, I, I am uh, a senior in college, I have always wanted to go into medicine, uh, help that youngster understand, if you will, some dynamics uh, of medicine that you would say, yes, you've done this long career in it, you've enjoyed it for these reasons, uh, give them a little bit of advice. Well, uh, that's a good question, and uh, what I would do is get involved early before to make sure you like it. So what I did, I was an orderly. And uh, if, if you can be an orderly and, and enjoy that, of course, back in the days when I was an orderly, it's, uh, they don't have orderlies anymore now, but you, you were a first line of defense, let me tell you that. You oh, yeah. um, took care of the very basics of things. Uh, and there, uh, if you were a male orderly, you were a little more geared towards taking care of the male patient. But uh, I did that and, and kind of enjoyed it and 
you know, wanted to put the science in behind it, and that's why I decided to go to, to medical school. Uh, but nowadays, the, the, the younger students like that have uh, uh, so much more uh, access to things like that now, and they have what they call shadowing programs. And they can uh, sign up for shadowing uh, physicians. So I've uh, uh, arranged for uh, a shadowing of several college students in the last actually uh, 24 months. Uh, and they've really thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, and they go spend eight hours a day for five days with an interventional cardiologist to see what it's like. I think it's an excellent idea and good thinking with that. Well, I want to get you back for another episode. We can expand on some of these other things that we've done. It's just been a treat to have you with us, give our listeners a lot of excellent data on uh, the field of cardiology, things we need to be looking out for, and some of the diagnostic tools and preventive stuff. And uh, just great to have you with us. And like I say, we'll get you down for another episode. Okay. Well, I hope people learn something and uh, maybe this has been motivational for them to, to uh, move forward with their life and improve their prognosis. Very good. I'm sure it has. And, and folks, as I always say, if you have questions for Dr. Marietta, all you have to do is uh, send that to me at my email, shellgriff at gmail.com, and I'm happy to get those to him, get answers in a future program, or as he comes back on in the future, And as I say to each and every one of you each time, have a safe and healthy day, and I'll see you a little further up the road.